What's up, everybody? This is Jose Nino here with El Nino Speaks. Today, I am joined by Todd Lewis, the host of the Praise of Folly podcast. For several of my listeners, they may recognize one of Todd's frequent contributors, Keith Preston, who has been on the show on multiple occasions, on El Nino Speaks specifically. And I've always enjoyed appraisal folly show ever since i've followed keith's work and inevitably it brought me to todd's youtube channel which i find fascinating they hold several discussions on current affairs and broader macro trends in the west i believe it's one of the best youtube channels to learn about politics in the west and how things are going to be changing throughout the rest of the 21st century but before we start Todd, uh, can you give my audience a brief bio and some of the stuff you do currently? Yeah. So I'm Todd Lewis, host of the Praise of Folly podcast. What this all started around 2016, back uh, when I was figuring out, trying to figure out how to get these unique ideas that I had out there. The, the IRL context was not very helpful. So I was like, well, online seems to be the only way to do that. Now, of course, at the time, I didn't exactly know how to leverage all the opportunities that the internet provided, but I just knew that I had to get out there and start sending a signal. And so one of the things that I discuss on all sorts of the shows is like there's economics, there's current events, there's politics, there's religion, there's history, there's philosophy. So there's probably something, I mean, on a small scale, I don't even talk about things like paranormal. There's, there's all sorts of stuff for all sorts of different perspectives. But on a regular basis, as you mentioned, Keith Preston is a regular guest on the roundtable. And that's every, uh, that's bi-monthly. And so we cover mostly current events. And we've gone through a lot of different personnel right now due to some scheduling issues with an old batch of people. We've brought on Keith's colleagues, Alexei and Florian, and they've both been excellent contributions to that. I do a casual stream. Uh, where I just talk about whatever I want. Sometimes I have a guest on. I'll have Keith on this Thursday. And then also I read on Tuesdays books that I think are important that people maybe haven't heard before. Somebody once said in the comments section of one of my videos, I won't read the books that you recommend, but I'll listen to you read them. So I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Fair enough. So how did you get into politics per se? So going back to the very beginning, probably some of my parents were sort of like what you might call normie cons today. Mm -hmm. Something like around 2000, 2001, but they had paleocon strain. So they, they, they would, um, there was the old Joe Sobran and then there was of course, uh, Pat Buchanan. Oh yeah. There was some sort of like pamphlet or like conservative, like publication that they would get where Joe Sobran and Pat Buchanan were always included. And, and I started reading them. So that's, again, more of the paleocon angle. And that's when I sort of got introduced to the, quote, the modern political scene. And I really liked what Pat Buchanan had to say. So early on, I was fairly skeptical of the war on terror because of a lot of the things that Pat Buchanan was saying and some of my own understandings of history. And then also Joe Sobran. So that's where it got started. So that's, that's interesting. I was more, in my case, I was more of a Ron Paul baby. 
but I quickly got into like Pat Buchanan's work and also uh, Alex Jones and like Lou Rockwell. And funny enough, it was actually like more of a sports forum that brought me to into this because there was a guy that would always constantly post in the off-topic political section and he was like the only guy posting there. This was like circa 2007. And I just saw some of his Ron Paul videos that he posted and I just fell down that rabbit hole after watching several of those. And then I had like a family friend actually who was like our de facto accountant who was big into like Alex Jones. And once I learned about that, like there was like no going back for me. I definitely started out more as a libertarian, but now I would say I'm more like on like the dissident right, like populist right. Yeah, I also had a, an Alex Jones and Ron Paul phase. That began around 2008. And I was introduced uh, to Alex Jones via the Obama deception. That was, uh, I think, 2007, 2008. The classic. <laughs> classic, classic Alex Jones. And yeah, Ron Paul, both in his 2008 and then 2012 run, I was big into that too, because the paleo conservatives and like the right libertarians or paleo libertarians, however you want to call them, had a lot of overlap for a while. And so I was sort of in that milieu. Yes, that was very noticeable, in my opinion, in Ron Paul's 2008 campaign. 2012, you kind of saw the small fissures that you now see that have become quite wide now because. One thing I noticed, because I was involved in some capacity in both campaigns, whether it's like a mostly lower level stuff, was that in 2012, the Ron Paul campaign became a, a little bit more prim and proper. And they started bringing in more people from like conservatism, Inc., and even establishment libertarianism to kind of like not so much like water down Ron Paul's message, but um, make it a bit more palatable to like the mainstream, and even de-emphasize some stuff about immigration because people tend to forget this, that Ron Paul in like 2008 and even throughout a good deal of his congressional career, he was a pretty solid immigration patriot slash restrictionist. But I, you saw more of a de-emphasis on that. And I think like 2012 was a harbinger of some of the interesting trends to come where I think like nowadays you see a very much like a, not like a traditional left-right split among like libertarians, conservatives and whatnot, but more like a populist versus like regime type of split. Yeah. So with, with the libertarians and the sort of, I guess, weakening of their influence Right around, I think it was the second Ron Paul campaign, so that like 2012, we had this this stark division between three broad sects, right? So uh, prior to 2012, Walter Block writes an essay called Plumbline Libertarianism, saying that, well, we're not liberals and we're not conservatives. We're right down the middle of the plumb line. And then you had this debate of thick versus thin libertarianism. The right-wing version of that was Hans Hoppe and the democracy of the guy that failed. He said that all libertarians ought to be conservatives and vice versa. And then you had the, the sort of like left version at C4SS, Center for a Stable Society, where they're like, well, no, if you want to be a libertarian, you have to have these like liberal progressive priors. And so you have three basic camps. you got the, the plumb line, which is we're just libertarians and nothing else. Uh, or we're like, you know, you have to really be a conservative to be a libertarian, which would be like Hoppe and company. 
which eventually helps in some small measure spawn the alt-right. And then also the C4SS crowd, which is, well, no, you gotta be more progressive, which I suppose you could say was help give birth to the Wokies. And so the libertarians end up having this sort of three-way divide where in 2008, they're all on the same side. They all, they all look like they're the same thing. But under the surface, there's these divisions that grow and grow and grow. And that only not only expressed itself with regards to other adjacent groups like paleoconservatives, but also within the libertarian movement itself. Oh, yes. And I was actually involved in one of those organizations, Students for Liberty, that was very much a regime libertarian type of org. It was very connected to Cato and the think tank industrial complex there. And there was some strong C4SS influence, even though there wasn't outright capture, you could still see like the mimetic power of their ideas pouring in. And I thankfully left that org like at the end of 2013, because now those orgs have just turned very, not just like neoliberal, but woke and also very much pro-CIA in terms of the type of like regime change ventures that they support now. Why do you think like libertarianism became very susceptible to this fracturing, um, this ideological and cultural fracturing at that time? Well, part of the problem with with libertarianism in uh, specifically and the broader uh, classical liberal project. So when I say liberal, I don't mean like FDR downstream progressive liberal but sort of like in this context, that the liberalism of like, say, John Locke or the early, the, the 19th century or the early 20th century, which was more, you know, about the classic idea of free markets, property rights. And what it tries to offer is this idea that anybody can sort of believe whatever they want, as long as they don't harm anyone else and initiate violence against anyone else. And we can all, you know, if we could all agree on that principle, we can then all get together and then have our very different perspectives on life and get along peacefully and just trade. It kind of reminds me of a statement from Voltaire where he said that, and I'm paraphrasing, that the sort of like stock exchange of London sort of because the only thing they cared about was your money. Was your money good? They didn't care about your religion. They didn't care about your ethnicity. And he thought that was great because it, it, according to Voltaire, that would get rid of the conflict that was tearing Europe apart. Like you see, it, it doesn't really do that. It only creates the appearance of doing that because you then have to step back and ask, well, what constitutes harm? What constitutes uh, aggression? And you know, the heyday of this tension was the anarcho-communist, uh, anarcho-socialists uh, on the one side, and the libertarians and AMCAPs on the other, debating over socialism versus capitalism. And they never really got anywhere because they could never agree on what harm was or what violence was. And those very different perspectives on religion, on ethics and morality, end up bubbling back up because it's like, well, due to this uh, fully embedded view that I have, harm is all these things. And a plumb line libertarian might be like, well, you know, those are all victimless crimes, bro. You, you can't say that's a. But both on the right and the left, there's going to be things that a plumb line libertarian would call victimless crimes, which they consider to be real transgressions. And so. Once you step back a level, there's no easy way to resolve that because while it appeared you agreed on the principles of you know, non-aggression or self-ownership, it turns out that there's – this is where I think the thick libertarians have a point 
there are certain other beliefs you have to have already to make sense of self-ownership and non-aggression. And whatever those happen to be uh, are going to be, and that was the debate. Is it more of a left-wing perspective or more of a right-wing perspective? And that debate has not been settled. One kind of off-topic, but I don't know if you've been keeping up with Walter Block's latest works, but he is turned into an unhinged Zionist now, which is <laughs> yes. actually not... Yeah, he... Uh, which is actually not surprising given his extraction, but it is like very curious that now um, I do think we are entering an interesting moment of politics that has gotten much more existential and tribal in nature that many people now, they're starting to become less ideological and are becoming more tribal in terms of like how they're um, moving politically. Because I think like the unipolar moment gave a lot of people in the West a kind of like luxury of holding like ideologically reductionist views with regards to their politics and how to organize. But now with the advent of mass migration and these managerial states that are trying to destroy their respective historic populations, uh, through the the affirmation migration or through these like through the promotion of like this sexually deviant behavior, people now they're tribing up much more. They're no longer having like nuanced political discussions. And I believe this is like a trend that has not only impacted like libertarians and even conservatives, but also some members of the left who are now having to uh, come to grips with that. Oh, I would absolutely totally agree. The quote-unquote end of history, say, 1991 to 2022, so that would be the fall of the Soviet Union to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That 30-year window is where a lot of just foolish and idiotic beliefs were tolerated because it appeared we conquered scarcity, we conquered you know global military conflicts. Everything was just going to keep going on this you know stasis. So that's what the propaganda encouraged us to believe, and. It just isn't true at all. And what's hilarious, like you said, with Walter Block being this unhinged Zionist, I mean, he was the one, you know, 15 years ago trying to like chart this middle course of plumb line libertarianism. Now, I don't know how dispossessing Palestinians is compatible with non-aggression, libertarianism, <laughs> or the yeah. plumb line. But then also, too, with you're right about the modern left. So, for example, I don't know how many of your listeners know who Derek Jensen is. Well, he's uh, he was a he's a radical environmentalist. He was a part of the Deep Green Resistance, and I've had him on a few times before. His he had a little clip that made the rounds with Keith Woods and other dissident right activists. With um, I think it was called Queer Theory Jeopardy. So he's become this kind of like unofficial hero on the right, and he's really feeling the pinch of how everything he thought that was settled on the left is now unsettled. And now he is considered, you know, far right and fascist by people that, you know, 10 years ago, they would have been on the same progressive page. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you actually think about it, like on the immigration question, um, people tend to forget this. The Democratic Party did have a uh, pro-labor contingent, whether it was like Barbara Jordan or even Bernie Sanders, like circa 2006, 2007, that were like very much like immigration patriots and restrictionists, but now because of um, 
the dominance of more of the cultural left as opposed to like the economically like reductionist labor left. The immigration question now on the left is basically like settled for the most part, at least like uh, among official leftist parties these days. Because they all support it, and it's all part of, and they've been ca- totally captured by um, a globally integrated capital now. Um, because I, I remember even like communist parties, um, and even to some degree to this day, if you go to Europe, a lot of communist parties were um, and still are opposed to um, mass migration. But it really depends where you go, because I, I think it's more of a trend. In some Mediterranean countries and some countries in like uh, Eastern Europe and Central Europe, because the right now, ostensibly at least the populist right, tends to be like the force that's for immigration restrictions. Yeah. The, well, it's interesting, right? Because right up until like 1980, even most Western Marxist political parties were anti immigration. I think part of what we're seeing is, is the capture of these parties. In order to serve a broader corporate interest. Also, you know, if you were to talk to more, I guess you could say, if you want to use the word traditional Marxist, like, I don't know if you follow like the patriotic socialists, like say Haas or Jackson Hinkle or Caleb Mott. Yeah, I, I what, follow, yeah. Now, what they'll say is that those are just Trotskyists. They've always been these subversive, quasi liberal elements. And they're not, you know, in the long run, they're not surprised that this happened. There's kind of like a right-left divide even within Marxism itself. You know, the, the left representing Trotsky and the right representing Stalin. Stalin, yeah. And there's some truth to that. And I think also Trotsky, there's, there's definitely some weird connection between Trotsky and Western intelligence. So in June of 1917, when he was on a ship called the SS Christiana Ford, moving from New York, where he was in exile, to Russia, at Halifax, he was uh, arrested by the Canadian Coast Guard. And they like, oh, this guy's an international terrorist. We need to, like, you know, arrest this guy and put him in prison. And somebody from MI6 goes to Canada and says, nope, let him go. That is extremely suspicious because, of course, Trotsky's goal was to overthrow the Kerensky regime, which was a British ally in the fight against Germany. So why would somebody from British intelligence come and tell the Canadian Coast Guard to let Trotsky go in order to overthrow a government that was already fighting the Germans as an ally of the British. Very suspicious. One thing also on a side note about Leon Trotsky, I think he has like a grandson or a great-grandson that is like a hardcore Zionist living in Israel that I think is part of like a far-right Israeli-like ultra-Orthodox or, like, settler party. I'm not sure the exact details, but I find that to be quite curious. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost like they're, they're trying to prove the alt-right correct. Almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Do you see, in, in your view, given these trends that are occurring in the West, do you see any reversion back to, like, standard fair libertarianism or conservatism eek politics or has this like new populist wave captured like um fully uh generally captured uh is going to capture um republican politics from now on 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. So there's, I guess, there's two parts to this question. One, will will populism capture the Republican Party? And then I guess two, even if it doesn't, what does the Republican Party look like moving on? I think in many ways, Trump in 2016 was kind of a uh, a lightning rod that sort of galvanized the the rhino establishment in order to be pro, uh, pro the current status quo. So, you know, the, the Democrats all of a sudden, you know, they 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 pilloried Bush for eight years, but now Bush is one of the good guys. You know, they're they're like you know praising Bush as one of our great presidents in the last twenty years. Which, if you were old enough to remember what it was like living through the Bush years, you'd think that's crazy because, I mean, there's just obviously what Trump got was far, far worse than what Bush got. But it was, it was, it, what it shows is that these people are aligned fundamentally on the same uh, economic and political issues. And I think that we won't really see a return to standard fair libertarianism or standard fair normie conservatism. This sort of like petite bourgeoisie's focus and fetishization of the market as this untrammeled force that you just have to let operate. Because the conditions, it, it goes back to Clinton's campaign advisor, where he said it's the economy stupid. Because the the economic issues that need to be addressed uh, are are not the ones of letting markets and capitals just flow. That's how we got to this problem. So you know, we've sent all of our factories over to China. Okay, well that was when about as as one might predict. And you know, we're we're hollowing out. The middle class itself by allowing these market forces to bring in these foreign workers to then take the jobs. And then what little jobs we have left, we're shipping back over to China. So, well, we were. And so the real issues of, you know, the rising cost of energy, the rising cost of food, the rising cost of all of these, the, the right just doesn't have an answer for this, right? You, you could argue the left answers were bad you know, under, say, Clinton or, you know, the opponents of George W. Bush. But at least they acknowledge that these were serious problems that had to be addressed, and they're only getting worse. And so if the old, older Normie Con libertarian right would just say, you know, close your eyes, don't look, it will eventually go away. Well, it didn't eventually go away. And I think that's, mm, everybody's more or less figured that out. Yes, I'm kind of... um Black-pilled and cynical because I've been involved in politics for some time, especially like at, through like lobbying operations and whatnot. And I think the populist movement like that will like capture some elements of the Republican Party. But I think the regime will try to channel some of that dissident energy and co-opt it to like make certain concessions here and there, but not do anything substantive to like fully stop the mass migration onslaught and the anti-white hate as promoted by the regime. And there are also, I think that there's still going to be really strong residual Zionist influence in the party. And actually what I've noticed with a good deal of these populist so-called anti-establishment organizations, they still have like some eerie amounts of like pro-Zionism and like uh, pro-Zionist like actors and influence within those orgs. And I think that there is very likely a concerted effort by Israeli operatives to ensure that the American right still has that Zionist influence in it because the left, um, funny enough, wokeism has, is now, in some regards, has um, inadvertently become 
like a threat to Israel and its overall like narrative um, in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, it has. The, the, the DEI quotas are actually adversely affecting, uh, you know, your Jewish selection. And there are, I've read articles, you know, from Jewish magazines and journals where they talk about, oh, we're getting replaced by these, uh, you know, these immigrants, these other people that were being used by DEI initiatives to displace us. Because those groups view the Jews as white. Do you think that public opinion will shift against Israel and thereby causing the U.S. to completely reach uh, change its relationship with Israel? On one hand, if we look at the global condemnation of the Israeli siege of Gaza, most of the world is, is already anti-Zionist. I, I think there was a, a U.N. voting issue where only, only the U.S. supported Israel and then Great Britain abstained. So globally, we're already seeing a very large shift against Israel. And the question is, will that be enough pressure to get the United States to abandon support of Israel? And I guess that depends on how strong you think that support is and, you know, how suicidal the U.S. is, right? Will they, will they risk the whole rest of the world uh, in order to do this? I, it's hard to tell because in many ways, the war on terror itself was an expression of this insanity. Yes, um, 100%. One thing I did notice, especially after the October 7th attack by Hamas, for like a brief second, you did see like almost like a reversion to like war on terror uh, type narratives and talking points. But I think the game has changed though now. People are so much more polarized and divided unlike in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 that they really can't get behind a uh, foreign policy cause like before. And just the fact that people also don't really care that much about Israel, which I think shows that there is um, a kind of retrenchment, if you will, in terms of like the American political mindset and not just like their policy priorities, but the mindset that they're just not really caring about these type of conflicts as much. But there's still like a massive like ruling class disconnect. Do you think that this disconnect will persist or will there be like a um, truly like anti-establishment backlash within the next like decade or so? Yeah. I mean, we can already see with the uh, election of a lot of the MAGA Republicans that a sort of anti-interventionist perspective is, is beginning to develop because there's been that fight, I think, in the Senate over appropriations for money to Ukraine, where Initially, the Democrats were like, well, if we just put it in some sort of like, you know, slush fund for Israel, we can then force the Republicans' hands so that they'll have to vote for it. And they still didn't vote for it, which is interesting for two reasons. One, it show, it seems to indicate that a lot of these MAGA populists are not going to as easily be uh, played but with the Israel card because even that appropriation, they weren't going to uh, vote for the money to Ukraine. I don't know if that issue has been resolved yet, but it's been going on for quite some time. And this also is the question, then, what do people think of like Donald Trump, right? Is Donald Trump or, or Elon Musk or any of these other corporate or political figures who are sort of positioning themselves to be subtly or not so subtly critical of these establishment, 
is this representing a change within the minds of certain elite groups that we need to take into account these new realities? It's hard to tell. It could be, though I think it's a little too early to say uh, definitively. Yeah, the Ukraine thing is definitely quite interesting because I was of the opinion that the Republican Party, by and large, was still captured by the neocon uh, mindset. And even like, I noticed that some of the Republicans that opposed aid, they kind of counter signaled in the way that like they're saying like, oh, this is like too economic. We need to be just sending like missiles and like heavier weaponry to Ukraine, like especially among the neocon ilk. But I think now there is like a populist wing in the GOP that is starting to oppose this stuff more on principle, more so than like this like stupid thing, uh, stupid like take these takes that they're saying like, oh, Biden should have like immediately sanctioned Russia, should have imposed harder sanctions or should have like sent more weapons like that. It's like a very common Republican talking point. I've noticed um, at meetings or even on my email list whenever I drop Russia content where they were saying like the Biden regime was like too weak or this wouldn't happen under Trump and all that nonsense. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't, you know, neocons and Zionists, but I, I do think that the, this new crop of MAGA yeah. Republicans as opposed to say like 10 years ago, the uh, Tea Party Republicans were are more concerned about American foreign adventures and are less willing to support them, uh, especially when one, there just seems to be no end in sight, like in Ukraine. And also, especially now, I mean, this America right now is so different than it was even, you know, 13 years ago under the first term of Obama, where everything is really falling apart. And people are like, well, why are we sending $100 billion of aid to Ukraine when this country's infrastructure is falling apart? You know, People are struggling to pay rent. People are struggling to buy food. People are struggling to pay student loan debt. All of a sudden, this, you know, that old way of thinking that might have worked during the war on terror 10 to 15 years ago. In addition, you also have a bunch of people that just lost sons and friends and relatives in that war, and there's really nothing to show for their sacrifice. Yes, I do think that, like, even in like the most cynical outlook I have, because I am like a perpetual political cynic, I do think the populist right, like the worst case scenario, will be like a handbrake um, against a lot of this like insanity. They will put up some form of gridlock against it because I do believe there are elites, whether it's like Peter Thiel or like Elon Musk now. Um, that are ostensibly on the right or adjacent to the right that recognize that this like U.S. system is like unsustainable. And if it continues going the course that it has since the unipolar moment, we're probably talking about um, not only seeing the U.S. go through like a very predictable phase of imperial overstretch, but also potential like civilizational disappearance. Um, when you look at mass migration trends and just like the ruling classes war against the historic American population, aka the white European population. Um, to me, all signs point of like a scenario where we're gonna be talking about the long lost tribes of the Euro-Americans by the end of the 21st century, um, if these trends are not reversed. Right, so with regards to demographics and, and demographic collapse, which is what you're talking about, I, I think actually I would agree that not only uh, you know, Western Europeans and 
heritage Americans are going to be, uh, you know, steeply in decline. One of the things where I think the 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 populist right and the alt right is a little too myopic is that they, these trends are all over the world, right? So so China by 2050 is projected to lose 300 million yeah. people. In his, I think it was 2006 or seven, you have Philip Longman's The Empty Cradle, where he talks about demographic decline. He cites to then, so that's like 20, almost 20 years ago, he cites statistics from the UN that it would indicate the global population would peak and then decline in 2050. I think it'll probably happen sooner than that because a lot, you know, history's started up again. And so the predictions that he was making were based on, you know, things just stay as they are. Not big wars breaking out like in Ukraine or the Middle East or Southeast or South Asia, but also we have the so for example one of the concerns is the immigration from Latin America. Most Latin American countries, Mexico specifically, has TFRs. TFRs an acronym for total fertility rate well below one. So they will also uh, feel yeah. this pressure. Agreed on that. Actually, um, when I lived in Chile, I lived in Chile from like 2014 to 2016. Um, I'm not sure what the exact numbers are right now, but their fertility rate even then was actually lower than the U.S. Um, that is like a trend. Um, I actually do agree with you that there is a broader um, macro trend now of like stagnating populations like across the board, especially any of these populations um, in countries that are now like somewhat industrializing or becoming service sector economies, that those same trends are hitting um, them quite hard. Exactly. And so that's not to minimize the threat to the European population bases, but I think to help contextualize this, well, certainly Western governments are intentionally importing the third world to depress the cost of wages, to depress the cost of labor, there's also this global effect, right? Because the UN itself, since the 70s, has been seeking to limit population growth around the world. And there have many ways of doing that. There was that famous TED Talk by Bill Gates around 2010 to 14, somewhere in that window, I think, where he's like, there's this formula for reducing human, for reducing the population of the planet. And, you know, there was a P variable in the formula for people. And he said famously that, we could use vaccines to reduce the p-value. You could look it up on YouTube. It's crazy. He actually said it. So this is actually kind of an interesting like thought experiment. If these trends are universal, how will it impact migration trends to the West? Do you actually think that there is a possibility? Because also, this is not happening in a vacuum because you're seeing like AI and more like automation occurring. Do you think there is actually a chance that a lot of migrants in the West may actually repatriate because of these trends to like their um, homelands? Yes. Yeah, I, I think that repatriation is possible for a few couple of reasons. One is why are these? Why are these? So the people that immigrate to the U.S. are the the highest uh, IQ, highest uh, performing elements of these different countries. Now they go to the U.S. You know, say from like 2000 till now because there's more opportunities and the cost of travel is relatively easy. But as wages increase and standard of living increase in their own country, are they really going to want to leave? Because the, the opportunity cost of leaving, you, you leave everything, your family, your friends, your community, the, the place you grew up, that's going to be weighed more heavily, I think, in the minds of these people. 
And furthermore, again, let's go back to the Mexican immigrants. Many of them didn't stay anyhow. It's kind of a revolving door. They go there to make a lot of money to send back home to yeah. eventually return home, right? So there is a sort of revolving door of, of going back to where you came from because you're just going to America to make money because it's easier to do there. I also think, though, that the, pop, the, the pressures that drove population exodus to the West, uh, in the case of the Middle East and North Africa, that was due to military conflict both in Syria and Libya, both of which can be attributed to the Obama regime and regime change through initially, you know, the sort of quote-unquote nonviolent activism, which failed to bring down Assad and turned into a decade-plus-long civil war, and then the brief NATO intervention in Libya. But then in, like, Latin America, that's not necessarily due to political instability. These regimes are far more stable than they were during the Cold War. But I think what will happen is that the cost of leaving to these people's mind, will 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 be outweighed by the cost of staying behind and building what they have because the 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 pay the, the gap in wages is closing. I mean, obviously, the U.S. will always pay more than any other country, but the problem is, you know, if you can approach the U.S. wages enough that you can stay with your family and friends and where you grew up, I think that will eventually cause more people to stay. Plus, other governments will be concerned that they're losing population now. It's like, well. Once they realize that they're on the downward slope of demographic growth, we could see these governments in the third world implement immigration restrictions in order to keep these people uh, at home. Yeah, I also think another big factor to if the U.S. economically experiences a massive economic reversal where the it loses like its reserve currency status, which I think it might be decades out from doing that. It'll be a while. But if it has like some massive economic reversal, the U.S. is not going to look any more attractive. And also, I think the crime trends in the U.S., a lot of American cities, people don't realize this, they're starting to get to like third world tier levels of like, not just like socioeconomic like disparities, but also violence as well. I remember like that one case like in New York where that like Dominican bodega owner who like, stabbed like a would-be robber and was initially like given like a murder charge or something like that for uh for like just simply defending himself but he was like luckily like those charges were dropped but he like ultimately just said like after this incident i'm just going back to the dominican republic because i just feel safer than in like new york city i think that could be another trend that um could um compel several migrants especially those that are like business owners and whatnot to um, actually go back to their country of origin Oh, I, I would totally agree. Yeah, because most immigrants to the to the West go to the cities because that's where the jobs are, that's where the opportunities are. They don't go to rural areas, by and large. And you're right, the cities are, especially in the United States, are, are falling apart. They're literally reaching third world tier status. I mean, you know, on the on the West Coast, you have you know, especially up in the the Portland Seattle area, the problem with drugs and and homelessness on the streets, and that's just reaching, you know, apocalyptic proportions. And there's really no answer forthcoming. Uh, one, one of the things that affects this a lot, too, is the sort of wokey progressive judges that have been since the, you know, Obama years, you know, you know, 16 years ago, they've been funneled in and they just view all of these crimes as the result of, you know, oppressed minorities reacting to the quote-unquote white capitalist supremacy 
And so they just keep on releasing them. And police officers are like, well, why are we going to arrest this guy if he's just going to get released by the judge? And so it, it, the, the system is kind of created a kill switch where it's sort of like killing itself. It's like we won't arrest or detain or do anything with these people that are destroying our, our um, economic and capital stock because we've, we've adopted this mindset as a control mechanism to keep the heritage Americans in their place. But now it's allowing all of these antisocial actors to destroy the very foundations of the economic order that they rest on. Yeah, it's going to be some in- intriguing stuff that's going to be going on in the decades to come. Now, if the right were to somehow take back power in like the U.S. or just like any Western country, do you think it will be like a purely populist right, an establishment right, or perhaps like a more like technocratic right that mixes elements of both? Well, I, I think the technocratic element in the modern West is firmly progressive. I don't really think it would be... Uh, if there was a technocracy, I don't think it would be very right-wing. I think if there was a right-wing uh, response politically that is successful, it would probably be more populist-oriented, like America First, for example, like with the Nick Fuentes crowd, or the original America First back in World War II with Charles Lindbergh, where it's like, you know, our country is being despoiled by globalism. We need to stand up and protect ourselves. You know, or it could it could also be what Pat Buchanan has advocated for a long time, uh, a more of a cultural thing where, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, the, we've all heard the meme by America, right, which highlights yeah. the generous and decay of this country. It, it could actually have more of a religious flavor to it. Not in the sense of like a single religious denomination. Not like that, but like, you know, a bipartisan, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, conservative, uh, you know, Jewish, uh, and, you know, Mormon and, and so on. Like, we're just going to have, we're going to draw a line right here. We're, we're tired of this filth. We're tired of the, the, what the schools are teaching our children and what they're doing to them. And that could be sort of like a broad center-right religious movement. I could easily see that coming to fruition as well. It, once uh, Trump is like, generally going to be out of the picture, which I actually think is not going to be for a while because I just think he has a lot of staying power. Do you think that the populist right in the U.S. will be even more, like, hardcore? Like, it will take, like, a more explicitly identitarian type of attitude? Or will it say more of the same, but, like, challenge, like, the regime in, like, different ways? Like, say, like, become more non-interventionist on foreign policy and actually like try to like roll back the administrative state. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Trump in many ways is such a central figure and personality to all this. In many ways, it kind of is similar to the question Russia after Putin, right? Putin is such a central decisive figure in the last 25 years of Russian history that it's sort of like, well, okay, what would Russia look like without him? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a successor, maybe Medvedev, but who or what would that look like? That becomes very difficult, right? Because uh, um, strong leaders can can be effective for countries or a movement as long as they're alive. But if they fail to have a successor, you might have a very weak leader, which leads to uh, the collapse of 
of the whole thing. And so I don't know, because you could view Trump as a sort of like safety valve, right? He still, he still keeps the political narrative kosher, if you know what I mean. And so as long as he's around, people are going to you know, not go all the way. So right, I think you could either see the populist right crumble because without a Trump-like figure, there's no one to like rally the troops. Or, like you speculate, it might be the case that Trump is holding back more of the extreme elements and more of the extreme ideas, which would then have room to grow, a kind of like a Yachian Caesar maybe would develop. So I think it's a little too early to tell. Like you said, Trump will be here for a while. I think, I think whoever replaces Trump is somebody we don't really know yet. Uh, interesting. So do, do you see much of a future for some of those like America first uh, populist types like, uh, well, I mean, like more, not so much populist, but identitarian types like Nick Fuentes, uh, Scott Greer and other people in that space? I think in the United States, what makes this a little bit harder than, say, in Europe is the, the diversity game has been played a lot longer in the United States. So they're like in Europe, you could appeal to like French or British or German or Italian identity and you could more easily attract people to that banner, a kind of like American identity, which is rooted in a, a kind of like, you know, ethnic background. I think it would be harder at this point. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I think it would be, it would be a harder sell than in Europe. And the, then the question would be, okay, but, Someone likes, I, I think the names you mentioned are not necessarily going to be the leaders of any of these movements. They kind of strike me as like middle management types. Like they're effective at like propagating the, the, the narrative. They're effective at rallying the troops. But like they're not the ones that are like in the general staff headquarters making the decisions. Yeah, definitely. I think that they may have like, that their ideas will influence a lot of the political elite um, it's kind of like, uh, what were those guys called um, in the um, uh, antebellum South in the lead up to the Civil War? I think it's like the Fire Breathers or whatever. The um, Fire Eaters? The Fire Eaters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those guys that were like putting uh, out a lot of like radical, like uh, anti-North, even like somewhat pro-secessionist content before um, the Confederacy became a thing. And... They, those guys didn't necessarily get into power, but their ideas influenced like Southern elites at the time, like from like Je Jefferson Davis to like Alexander Stevens, that the political elites across the South just universally like embraced a uh, fire eater rhetoric and like policy vision. I think you could see some similar dynamic take place in the populist right in the US where Fuentes, Greer like takes become um, embraced by otherwise like standard fair Republican politicians or those like on the populist right, they um, they start to like embrace that. Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy for, for what these people would do. So then the question is, you know, who would be the, you know, the, the Jefferson Davises or the, yeah. the Stevenses? I, I don't know who that would be. Or, or if they'd even be maybe some sort of like corporate tycoon like a trump i don't know who that i mean somebody might say well wouldn't that be elon musk or wouldn't that be peter Thiel or whatever maybe but i don't i don't really think those guys are necessarily going to be the ones that do it because i think a lot of these like business popular intellectuals you know get get invited to talk shows and do all this stuff 
they're not really there to draw. They're not really there to drive the narrative. They're there to confirm certain pre-existing narratives, right? They come out to in the same way that, like in the Obama administration, you have like some of these like progressive financial elite types coming out saying, "Oh yeah, you know, stimulus totally works." You know, trust the plan. Obama knows what he's doing. And, you know, they weren't the ones that were running for office, but they were like sort of like public intellectuals who were like wealthy financial types. And I, on the left, I think Peter Thiel and Elon Musk will represent that on the right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's going to be something interesting to observe from now on. What do you think is going to happen in 2024? Do you believe that there will actually be an election? Because I'm of the opinion that um, we're reaching the point with all these election irregularities and these efforts to stymie um, Trump's um, presidential run that elections in the U.S. are just no longer going to be normal if we're going to even have them at all. I do think that there will be a lot of election irregularities. I think there were irregularities in 2020, even in the Democratic primaries. But, um, I mean, the, the thing that was very suspicious was in the Democratic primaries, Bernie Sanders was leading everywhere. And then all of a sudden, uh, he wasn't. He didn't even win his home state of Vermont, which is ridiculous because he did in 2016 when he ran against Hillary. And then there was a whole Dominion voting system that came out in Arizona during that part of the primaries, which I think cast doubt on who the Democratic nominee should have been. But to, to prevent an election, see, even Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War still held an election in 1864. You know, if, if there was ever an existential crisis in which it was justifiable to suspend an election, it would have been the U.S. Civil War, which Abraham Lincoln did not do. So anybody who does that is probably going to commit political suicide. I, I, I have a hard time believing that itself wouldn't cause a civil war. So, for example, in 2000, when Al Gore uh, gracefully bowed out after failing the recount in Florida, he said, you know, in some televised speech, one of the strengths of the American political system is that when one side loses an election, there's the peaceful transfer of power. And if we get to a point where that's no longer guaranteed, that is Rubicon. a complete repudiation of everything America's ever stood for. And it's going to be very difficult to walk that back. Yeah, that's a Rubicon moment for sure. Like, there's like no way uh, the U.S. will be like institutionally stable from that point going forward. Well, man, um, I think this is a good place to wrap things up, Todd. Um, I had a great time chatting with you, but before we depart, um, let my audience know where they can find your latest work. Yeah, so you can you can follow me on YouTube. Of course, that's where the, the podcast and the channel is. It's just praise of folly. And then you can also follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Locals and subscribe star and buy me a coffee any one of my videos has a complete with recent videos has a complete list of all the places you can contact me and support me and find me great stuff todd uh, i really enjoy your work and i look forward to not only your content that you constantly put out at praise of folly and the contributors you bring but also um i'd like to bring you back on to the show because i think you um offer some valuable contributions in an otherwise like stagnant um, space of political discourse. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks a lot. All right. And to my audience, thank you again for your constant attention and viewership. And with that, El Nino has spoken. <laughs>